When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Life isn't a dress rehearsal, but how I use this week is something that matters in in life. That was Oliver Berkman on Psychologist Off the Clock. We are three clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of ACT Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist, assistant professor at Brown University, and author of the upcoming book, Work, Parent, Thrive. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of ACT Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk dot com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. It's Patricia Karpis, host of Untangle, the award-winning podcast that covers topics like optimizing brain health, finding your purpose, how to sleep better, harnessing the power of anxiety, successfully changing habits, finding more happiness and joy, and overall, all the many ways to live your best life. If you enjoy hearing from thought leaders, neuroscientists, psychologists, nutritionists, business leaders, and more. Join us wherever you listen to podcasts. Psychologists Off the Clock is proud to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. Praxis is the premier provider of evidence-based training for mental health professionals. Praxis offers both live and on-demand courses with options for beginner as well as more advanced clinicians. Praxis is also known for its top acceptance and commitment therapy trainers. So if you're a clinician and you want to level up your ACT skills, Praxis is the place. And if you're like us at Psychologists Off the Clock and you want to transform your clients' lives by learning how to effectively promote lasting change with evidence-based training, check out Praxis Continuing Education. You can get a coupon code on the offers page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com slash sponsors. Hi, this is Debbie, and Yael and I are here today. We we co-interviewed Oliver Berkman. He's a, the author of a few books, and we interviewed him about his book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, because 
we both loved this book so much. We just kind of had to do it together. And one of the things that happened with this interview, you know, I grapple with time management. I have the podcast on top of my, you know, my day job as a therapist and and other things that I do. And I'm a parent. So this morning, the interview happened pretty early for me here in Denver because of time zone differences. And I couldn't find my headphones, which were missing from where they normally are. And I was in this big tizzy trying to get myself going without headphones and scrambling around trying to figure out something, which by the way, if my audio, I don't know if my audio is if you can tell or not, but it might not be quite as good because I had to improvise. Um, But one of the reasons that happened is because yesterday I took my daughter skiing. I had actually a pretty light day, but I was going to catch up on everything and get ready for this interview. And I had a bunch of other things I was planning to work on. And I just really needed that time to get because I had a light clinical load to to get that some things done. And it was really important to me to have this time with my daughter. We played hooky and we went up together and we, you know, just spent a few hours skiing and we had fun together. And it, it felt important to me for a number of reasons to do that right now. And it was just an interesting timing to be talking with Oliver about his work on being intentional with time and how we only have so much of it. And and often the important things get lost in the shuffle. Yes. And that was such a great example, Debbie, of making a choice about using your time with eyes open, but also not getting to avoid the costs of that. There's always opportunity costs when we choose to use our time in one way and not another. The heart of the book is that we can't do it all. We don't have all the time in the world. And so yesterday when you made a choice to play hooky and go skiing, that gave you a lot and it was values consistent, but it also meant that you weren't clearing the deck on other things that felt important or that were going to kind of come back and haunt you the next day. But that doesn't mean it was the wrong choice. It was just a choice like any other, which has benefits and has costs. And I think that is where values really fit in, that you were clear on your values and that you can accept that that also might have other things to deal with in in the long run. And one of the things I think that any listeners will get out of this interview is just that very high level perspective, right? Like really zooming out and thinking big picture. This isn't going to be like, oh, here's five steps for how to be really efficient or give you a very concrete time management system that you can use, but rather it's going to help you look at the big picture of your life and how you're losing your time. But there are a few concrete strategies in there as well, I think, from what Oliver does in his own life and that kind of thing. But I also think it's it's really more of a perspective shift. Yeah. And some of the some of the concrete things are really attached to the perspective shift. So for example, he talks about the amount of time that he spends on work, which is actually less than you might expect, but he does it very deliberately and focused, kind of a deep work kind of approach. And then really takes a very flexible approach to the rest of his day. And I think some of those tips, as well as the tips around building patience and the value of building patience in a world that is so impatient, are just really helpful. So the high-level ideas of accepting our finitude, of realizing that we're always making choices and that we can't do it all, help lead to some of these concrete choices that we each can make day to day and hopefully in a value aligned way. And that when we do that, we feel less encumbered by 
the limitations of time and more present in what is. We can be more inside of the process as opposed to panicking that we're not getting to the outcome that we're looking for. And that fits in, Debbie, to the work that you and I do. You're writing a a book about burnout in work, and I'm writing a book about working parenthood. And so I think this is something that we'll continue to talk about in future episodes around our work and hopefully have guests that bring in some of these similar ideas to, to Oliver Berkman around acceptance of mortality, making value aligned choices, and figuring out how to engage in the roles that are most important to us in the most effective ways possible. Debbie and I are here today with Oliver Berkman, who's a journalist and the author of several terrific books, including The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking, which is one of my favorite titles. And he has a new book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. Also another great title. You have a knack for good titles, Oliver. (laughs) This new book is about making the most of our finite lives in a world of impossible demands, relentless distraction, and productivity techniques that mainly just make everyone feel busier. So we're really excited to have him here to talk about this very, very important topic. Welcome, Oliver. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, we rarely have two co-hosts interview an author on this podcast, but it turns out that we were both vying for president of the Oliver Berkman Fan Club and decided that neither of us could miss out on this amazing opportunity, which ironically goes very much against your advice of finding the joy in missing out. So I thought that that might be a, a fun place to start because you talk about a hard reality that nobody wants to confront, which is that we will miss out on things, but you recommend embracing limits and hard choices. So I wonder if you can sort of start us off by talking about this idea of approaching and being open to neglecting things and actually finding joy in doing so, even when, as you know, many of us want to, like Kafka wrote, live more than one life. Right, right. Oh, and me too. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's useful here probably just to begin by making this general point that what I think I'm trying to do in this book, what I see myself trying to do is... um is point out certain things that just are already true and that we go to quite great lengths to sort of avoid confronting and feeling uh, fully in ourselves, as opposed to suggesting that people change what's true, right? So it's not about um, going from a life where you don't miss out on things to a life where you do. It's about seeing that you already are inevitably missing out on most things by virtue of being a finite human in a world of effectively infinite possibilities, obligations, opportunities, demands. And so um, the, 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 the solace and the extra me- sense of meaning comes from sort of stepping more authentically into the situation that you're already in, as it were. Um, seeing that, you know, since missing out is completely inevitable, uh, since every decision to um, commit to any project or relationship or anything like that is by definition a decision to repudiate the other ones at least for now um and that since you don't have any choice in that matter if you do it more consciously firstly you make wiser decisions because you're no longer kidding yourself that you're not making tough choices and then secondly there's a kind of a sense of affirmation in in doing that right there's a sense of really having chosen it so if i if I think something's wrong with my life because I have to choose between uh, spending time with my five-year-old son and doing some work project that I'm excited by, then I'm constantly going to be trying to find ways to 
I'm not going to be fully present with each of these things. I'm going to be thinking that some time is coming in the future when these things are not going to have to be traded off against each other. Um, and it's going to be very stressful and less fulfilling. But if I see that, like, that's just how it is, right? I, I could use this hour for one thing or I could use it for the other. Then almost whichever I choose, um, uh, not always my choice, of course, when, when, I, when, when it comes to looking after kids, is it? But by seeing that I had to choose, the choice is sort of imbued with meaning. It's easier to be present in that choice and to sort of not feel that terrible sense of like, oh, should I be doing something different? Because on one level, the answer to that question is always yes. Like, yeah, there are there are a thousand useful, valuable, important things you could be doing now. So, um, so yeah, you, you could be doing something different, but that's okay. I love that example of the tension between work and family roles, because I, I do think there's this myth in our culture that if you have a conflict between two roles, it's something to solve. And what you write about and what you're saying here now is that there's, if we sort of accept that as the reality, as opposed to fighting it, then we can make more deliberate choices and feel better about whatever we choose, knowing that we're choosing one thing and therefore not choosing the other, but that there's no alternative. You, you kind of have to. Right. Absolutely. And it's like, yes, there are all these kind of ideas. Work-life balance is one of my particular least favorites that imply that some sort of final um, reconciliation ought to be possible between those kinds of clashing roles. But what if it's always going to be the case that, yeah, if, if you, if you, I mean, I think if I, if I wasn't constrained by the human condition in the ways that I am, I would love to give even more time than I do to being a, a, a present parent. I would also love to spend, you know, 10 hours a day reading into whole new areas of philosophy and another 10 hours a day um, hiking in the hills here near where, where we live. And, you know, very quickly, I'm at way more than 24 hours and plus I need to sleep. So, so um, yeah, that would be great, but it's, but it's not a realistic assessment of where we are and so you're only going to add to your sense of stress and your second guessing of yourself if you think that it's a problem that that situation exists it's it's another example of this idea of like treating life as some kind of problem to be solved which i think probably runs through a lot of what i'm what i'm writing well one of the ways that i think you make this point really well in the book and it's even embedded into your title is by giving us this dose of reality that our time is finite, right? That we're mortals. And I mean, newsflash, we're all going to die eventually, right? And I think sometimes we don't want to think about that. But actually thinking about that can really give us some perspective taking when it comes to how we use our time and time management. So Oliver, why do you think it's important to tap into that sense of mortality if you're really going to be deliberate about time? I mean, as you say, with your you know, sort of jokingly using the word newsflash, this isn't something that people don't realize, mainly. Uh, maybe some people don't realize, but it's something that they we don't sort of internalize and face up to in the way that we we could. So we know that we're going to die. We know our time is finite, but we sort of act. And this, you know, Seneca, the Roman Stoic, made this observation. This is old, old, old. But we sort of act as if we were immortal, even while knowing and feeling sort of haunted by the fact that we're, that we're not. So we, we go through our days as if we had all the time in the world. Um, I don't think that uh, it, it, it's necessarily about sort of thinking a lot about death and dying. I, I haven't 
you know, there's a role for that. I write about that a little bit in the earlier book, but it, it's more just to do with this ramification of being of diet. Of, it's a consequence, uh, one of the consequences of the fact that we die, which is that our time is is finite. Which, that that you can't constantly put off the meaningful parts of your life into the future because at a certain point the future will run out. Um, and so the, the the useful thing about sort of stepping more fully into this realization is not, I think, that you go around all day thinking about death, um, but that you you just sort of see the stakes from minute to minute a little bit more clearly. So you see that like actually how you use an hour is an important question. And um, you see that uh, telling yourself that at some point you're going to get everything in working order so that you can do everything is, is a, is an illusion. And I don't think this needs to be a stressful recipe for like, Oh my goodness, am I making the most out of life? That's the other thing I'm always at pains to sort of push back against. I think it's liberating and relaxing because you get to say, well, okay, certain things are not possible for me as a human, like pleasing every single person, fulfilling every single ambition that occurs to me, answering every single email somebody might conceivably send me, uh, fulfilling every social pressure that I feel from the society, right? Doing all that is off the table. So now I just get to have a bit more agency in choosing which handful of those things I'm going to focus on. I think you're bringing up something really important that you that you write about in in the chapter what cosmic insignificance therapy that there's this paradox of when you recognize that life is finite and that you can't accomplish all that you want to that instead of making you depressed, it can actually be helpful. And in fact, you offer an invitation to pursue a modestly significant life. And so I wonder if you can, and I'll just read a quote from your book that I thought was terrific. Um, But the idea is that this kind of treatment can help you drop back down from godlike fantasies of cosmic significance into the experience of life as it is concretely, finitely, and often enough marvelously really is. This is kind of like a mind-blowing idea that recognizing that we might live a fairly insignificant life can actually be helpful. So can you talk us through that idea? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different ways ways into this. One of them is just to say, like, you know, it's that familiar reminder when it comes to a big decision that's sort of churning you up inside that, um, you know, ask yourself who's going to care which way you decide in, in 100 years or, frankly, even in 24 hours quite often, right? There's, there's some freedom in sort of just lowering the stakes uh, and and it, and it actually can free you up not to, you know, live a life of despair, but to take bold choices, make risky uh, decisions, you know, because because actually the stakes are lower than you, than you thought. And I guess to get a bit more profound or something with it, there is this idea that we, we go about with, very some very unhelpful definitions i think in our minds of what counts as a meaningful life and what counts as fulfilling our potential and you know that may be for some people um becoming very famous and successful and huge professional success and there have been uh you know there's that's important and i don't want to put that um you know to, to suggest that that it isn't um but at the same time, I don't think you'd want a definition of meaningful activity in life that that left all these other things that we do in our lives, cook nutritious meals for our children or, you know, keep some small part of our neighborhood looking more beautiful than it otherwise might or care for an elderly relative or, um, 
I don't know, a million things like this that, that we, you know, we just instinctively, we, we know are part of the, of a meaningful way to spend our time on the planet, but that probably don't meet this criterion of like, you know, you've got to put a dent in the universe to quote Steve Jobs, or you've got to do something that is really extraordinary or, or unusual. Um, so I think it's just important to, um, work with a, a definition of a meaningful life that is fitted to our scale as humans, because otherwise, you know, maybe Shakespeare and Einstein get to have meaningful lives, maybe even Steve Jobs, but then the rest of us have no hope. Right. And and these ideas all fit in with the kind of therapy that, that Debbie and Jill and I do, acceptance and commitment therapy, which you talk about in the antidote. I believe you interviewed Steve Hayes, right? Uh, I wrote about him. Yes. I, we, we had a little, communication and then i wrote about his um use of the chinese finger trap to right. demonstrate uh the idea that some about that sometimes um trying too hard to change your emotions is is a surefire way to make yourself feel feel worse right and i mean I th- it's sort of interesting how similar some of the recommendations for happiness are uh, to recommendations for time management, it's sort of like accepting the reality, leaning into the discomfort is actually the most freeing thing that you can do. And that's one of the core processes in acceptance and commitment therapy is acceptance. And I think the way that you write about it is so eye-opening, I think, for people outside of the field of psychology. So, um, you know, I think that is a tip of accepting the uncomfortable realities rather than trying to run away from them or solve them when they can't be solved because they're so fundamental to human existence is such a powerful truth. You know, it's an ancient truth. It's a modern truth. But, you know, what laboratory science and social scientists have discovered is that when we kind of open up to those uncomfortable truths, they're not as restrictive. They're not as terrifying and and so I think that's that's a big take home from your from your writing. Yeah, I don't. I'm I'm fascinated by that, and I don't know enough about um, acceptance and commitment therapy to sort of say much more. But I do think that I guess I see it as occupying some or seeking to occupy some space between between sort of cognitive behavioral therapy with its intense focus on on interventions and change, and then you know psych- so psychodynamic therapy with its focus on understanding and insight and maybe maybe also just sort of reconciling yourself to the to the human situation so i sort of appreciate i appreciate that in it because i think that's that that sort of ground where you where you where it's not just a question of seeing how things are but also not just a question of fixing what you imagine to be your problems is is really powerful yeah well, and speaking of that discomfort and, and avoidance, I would say that sometimes there can be almost an addictive quality to being busy or to this fast-paced living that we all get into where we have all these tasks to do and we're constantly busy. And I can relate to that in my own life, right? Sometimes it feels very, I don't know, I get a little jolt of dopamine or something when I'm just checking things off my to-do list. But I think there's some costs of that. So I was just curious if you could talk a little bit about that cycle. Why do we get into that cycle of just productivity and efficiency and busyness? And and what do you think are the costs of that? Yeah, so my, my hunch that I sort of pursue in the book, in the most recent book, is that is that a lot of the ways in which we think we are trying to be good and diligent and, and productive uh, are 
best understood probably as forms of as, as forms of emotional avoidance, ways of trying to not feel the Im- impact of of our limitations, of the fact that we're always having to make tough choices about our limited time. So that you know, and partly this is me talking about my own journey. So it might not be a universal thing, but I think that um, that sense that you're you're building systems and disciplining yourself to become more and more efficient so that at some point in the future, because you never quite arrive at it, do you? You're going to get to this place where you are just effortlessly optimized and handling everything that can be thrown at you, realizing your potential, meeting your obligations. That That is, that's performing, a, seems to me, a very obvious and useful, but ultimately detrimental psychological job, which is it's helping you feel like, okay, I don't have to actually confront the fact that this is it that life isn't a dress rehearsal that how i use this week is something that matters in in life i can it's all makes it all provisional and waiting for this moment when you're sort of fully optimized and productive and you know if that didn't get in the way of leading a meaningful life then maybe there would be no problem with that i may i'm not i'm not sure i think that there's something intrinsically good about confronting reality but but there's something very practically good which is that 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 sort of treadmill of productivity um firstly it causes you to sort of I, I generally to sort of focus entirely on the future and to put the meaning of life in this kind of like when i finally get through this stuff and it turns everything you're doing now into something you have to kind of get through to get to something good rather than something that could be good in itself and then there are all these phenomena to do with parkinson's law and what i call the efficiency trap right which is how actually getting more efficient at things like email or life admin um, beyond a certain point anyway, uh, will just generate more of more email and more admin. So um, it's not even an effective way of getting through those things because the supply is effectively infinite. So going faster just means you, you do more and feel busier, but you don't get any closer to getting to the end of it. Well, and I, I want to jump in with an example of my own that that's related to your book, because when uh, I was ready to order your new book. It was out of stock. It was so popular. You, you've done a marvelous oh, tell job. Tell me about it. The supply chain crisis has hit me as well as as well as the whole of uh, American industry. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's the supply chain, but also I think people are really hungry for <laughs> this kind of conversation. So it was out of stock when I wanted to order. So I ended up um, listening to it on Audible, and I love Audible books because it helps me to multitask. I can <laughs> consume books, which I love. My, my husband is always telling me, you're not reading, you're consuming. And <laughs> I'm sometimes half consuming because I'm distracted. And I admit that, but but it's it it feels really good, as Debbie was saying, you know, there's mm-hmm. sort of like that. I'm getting things done. Yeah. Um, and I will admit too, that I listened to my Ottawa book set at 1.2 times uh, speed because right, it's right, very right. efficient. Yeah. <laughs> And as I'm listening to it, I'm also, you are the one reading it, which is lovely. And you, you're you sort of recommending patience and slowing down. And and so I was thinking about this concept of patience as I'm listening to your book at 1.2 times speed while I'm doing my morning runs. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about sort of the history of this virtue of patience and why it's really gone off trend and what the costs are to us. Yeah, sure. Um, I want to give due credit here to um, Jennifer Roberts, who's an art historian at Harvard, who I write about in the book and who really uh, switched me onto this way of thinking about patience. Briefly, in terms of my thesis, I think that um, impatience is generally an attempt to sort of get the world to go as fast as you 
think it should and frustration at the fact that it won't. And that's all connected to this idea of our limitations and the fact that we don't get to dictate reality in the way that we that we wish that there are one of the limitations we have is that certain things take the time that they take. But um, Jennifer Roberts points out that, you know, historically, patience seems like a very passive uh, kind of virtue. So you imagine sort of, um, you know, um, young Victorian women being told about the necessity to be patient because it was the because they they were meant to you know stay home and and it was the men who were living the engaged lives in the public sphere or you you think about how patients could be uh, you know abused in a million different ways to tell people or groups that like for now they just have to deal with the fact that they lack privileges or they lack control um and it's it's sort of a way of reconciling yourself to to lacking control in in society but roberts makes this brilliant point i think that as society accelerates and as we become completely geared towards doing everything as fast as we possibly can the capacity to be patient in lots of contexts is actually a sort of form of agency or of assert self-assertion or of even of control it's not it's not something you do to sort of make it more tolerable to be a doormat it's something you do to actually kind of, I don't know, gain a professional edge apart from anything else. Because if everything is moving so fast um, and yet certain things just require a certain amount of time, reading, thinking, creative work, all these kind of things where so many of us are, are seeking to make our living, you actually, it's really beneficial to not just succumb to the social pressure to go as fast as you can and to be able to feel the discomfort that comes from uh, letting things take the time they take, which is why uh, Jennifer Roberts asks all her incoming students to do this exercise where they have to find a painting or a sculpture and go and look at it for three hours straight. And uh, why I did that too when I went to interview her and, and chose a painting in the Harvard Art Museums and just sat in front of it for three hours. Um, just as an example of this, right, there's immense discomfort associated with this. You feel incredibly impatient and antsy because like, you're just not used to being dictated or I'm not used to having the tempo of life dictated to me in, in the way that this rule uh, was doing that, you know, you had to be there for three hours. But on the other hand, you literally, I don't mean metaphorically, I mean, literally see things in a painting once you've looked at it for an hour or so that you did not see before that moment, right? The, the, the experience is completely different because actually, as it turns out, a good painting um, has things in it that, that repay that kind of patience. And I think that generalizes. I don't think it's just about art appreciation. I think it is most definitely, for example, about parenting small children. I was just going <laughs> to say that. I was going to say, have you applied that to parenting your small child? Because I, I think that is another area where we don't get to dictate how quickly things go. And when we push, we miss out. And when we slow down and allow our children to have some say in how long things take. We sometimes learn a lot more about them, their, their texture, their depth. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like any, like any parent, I'm sure these days of a five-year-old, I find myself thinking like, oh no, like he can't, he can't stay focused on something for more than five minutes without wanting to do something different. Is this like modern technology? Is there too much screen time in this house? And then this literally happened to me a couple of days ago. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this thing everyone always says I should do and just be like, like, let's just really, I've got three hours now. Let's just make it like your choice. What do, what do you, what are we going to do? Are the, here the, I'll make like a few rules about 
spending money and e- eating all the unhealthy food in the cupboard or whatever. But apart from that, like you get to choose and 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 I'm going to be there and enter into it. I didn't say it in these terms to five-year-old, but you know what I mean? Um, uh, unless you want to do it on your own, which is fine. And then instantly we're involved in an imaginative play that lasts literally an hour and a half, right? That there's no sense of, of, of a short attention span or anything like that, just because actually what kids want from us, I think, so often is just to enter as fully as we can into their experience. And so, you know, maybe the reason that he doesn't want to draw a picture on his own for more than five minutes is because he's well aware that I'm the other end of the kitchen, like distracted trying to do something else. You know, it's like, I'm not, I'm not there as much as I, as much as I could or should be. And as soon as you are, which involves the willingness to sort of let the thing unfold at, at its own pace, suddenly all these things that I think are wrong with, I don't know, my parenting or how I'm raising myself, they're, they're not there. It's just because I, Generally speaking, I'm wanting things to go on my agenda too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If that makes sense. I don't know. That yeah. makes so much sense. And you offer these three principles of, of patience, and I wonder if you can share what they are because they're such great practices and, and ways to think about patience in, in a helpful way. So the first one is, is what I phrase as uh, developing a taste for having problems. And I think what I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is just this sense that part of what's happening when we're sort of impatiently racing through life is not just that we want to get through specific things, although that's certainly the case with some unpleasant chores or distressing experiences, but we're actually, tr- we're, we've got some unarticulated fantasy that we're trying to race through to some point where we don't have problems at all. I think a lot of us, I'm speaking from experience, but I know it's not just me, sort of have this double objection to the problems in our lives. Like firstly, you've got a problem you've got to solve. And then secondly, you're kind of affronted on some level that you even have to deal with problems in your life. And you forget that actually, if you're, for example, if you're employed in a job where you use your brain, um, big part of why you got that job is precisely because you're, you've got some aptitude for solving the, the unexpected problems. If it, if it was all plain sailing, it could probably be done by a robot, but uh, solving the problems is the, is the thing that human ingenuity is, is required for. And so it's just very, very liberating in a way to realize that you're never going to get to a point in life where there are no problems and that you actually wouldn't want to, because what is a problem? It's just like a, a challenging thing to which you have to apply your yourself and that, that has some value um to you that means something to you that's just the substance of life it's not something to be got rid of obviously there are particular bad problems that i wouldn't wish on anyone and that you probably do want to get rid of but this notion that there's a golden age of no problems coming i think makes people even more impatient about the about the ones that they have in the moment um uh, the other two rules, one is to embrace radical incrementalism, this idea that actually there's an enormous amount of power and being able to work for just a small period of time, but day after day after day on a, on a project, um, for being willing to make progress slowly. And what you can actually get in res- return for that is, is much more, and even in a sense, faster progress, right? Than if you than if you try to make progress in huge binges and then you're exhausted for weeks and don't do anything more on it. Or if you build projects up in your life to such a large picture in your mind that they're too intimidating to actually get around to and you procrastinate on them. The third one is about originality and unoriginality. And there's a very long story here that I won't go into unless you ask me to. Um, but the, the 
end result of it is just this notion, especially in creative work, that you sometimes have to be, and I think maybe it applies to relationships and things like that as well, you sometimes have to be patient um, to get through a period of learning at the beginning of something like this that, that feels where it feels like you're not really doing something original if it's creative work or you're not really getting into the really deepest part of it if it's a relationship or an activity that that to which that would apply and that actually there's patience involved in just sort of being willing to feel that for the time being you're doing something the same as everyone else you know um you're not being sufficiently extraordinary in your life or something in order to get to the more extraordinary parts of those seemingly ordinary experiences well, I, I, I would welcome you to share the story because I think that this is a part of how we get into the creative process and it's important that patience is a part of that. Yeah. With the curse word or without the curse word? Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what kind of podcast this is. I mean, you, can always edit, you can always edit it out. Um, uh, so this is, a, um, this is a story that the um, Finnish-American photographer Arno Minkinen tells and he's told it to his sort of um, graduating photography students. And... So this is with reference to developing a career as a photographer, but I think it applies much more widely. He uses the analogy of the the, the Helsinki Central Bus Station, where all sorts of bus routes start from the same platforms, and then they follow the same. They, they stop at the same stops for quite a few uh, stops uh, while they're still within the city limits of Helsinki. And he says that if you think about each bus stop as a year of your career what often happens to people is they will sort of take some photos they'll develop a portfolio they'll take it to a gallery and they'll realize they'll be told that it's very derivative it's really similar to some established um photographer and they uh they get very depressed it's like oh uh, this my bus was on the same route as this photographer so i've got to go back to the central bus station and choose a new route so they do it again choose a new route same thing happens they find out that actually the route they were on is the same one stopping at the same places as this famous photographer who's gone before them. And it can go on and on and on. You sort of waste your professional life constantly trying to be original and always finding that you're not. Um, and Minkinen asks the question, you know, what's the solution? And the solution is to stay on the fucking bus because the point is that um, – or to stay on the bus if you need a different bit of audio that doesn't involve that word. Um, uh, because it's after those initial stops. I hope this analogy is holding. Um, it's after those initial stops that the bus routes begin to open off and to go into unique individual destinations around the suburbs and the countryside outlying Helsinki. It's not, it's you, what the mistake you made was thinking that because you weren't going on a completely original path at the beginning, that you were destined to be on an unoriginal path. Actually, it was having the patience to stay on that unoriginal path for a few stops. That um, is, is, is how you get to the bit where you really truly begin to feel like you're doing your own thing. There's a related idea that in a very famous bit of quotation from Ira Glass, the radio um, producer, this American Life um, creator, about how it often depresses people starting off early in radio that like, because their tastes are so refined, but their skills are still being formed. They think that what they're producing is terrible rubbish, but it's actually because they are already connoisseurs and, 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 they, are, and they are seeing their own product for the beginner product that it is. Um, but it's not because they're bad. It's actually because they have real taste and, and that their abilities don't yet 
match up to their taste. Wow, I can relate to that with podcasting, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tough on ourselves because even though we're amateurs at this, we're, you know, we have high standards, I think. Yeah. And the science on this is so interesting because it reminds me a lot of the work on grit or mindset that mm-hmm. it's sort of like we think that natural talent should breed creativity, but there's almost like no such thing as natural talent. It's effort and persistence and sticking with it, which all comes down to patience. Mm -hmm. And yet, because we absorb these things and we don't see the effort that goes into it, we just see the outcome. So we compare ourselves from wherever we are in our earlier on in our bus route (laughs) to the outcome that other people have. And it feels like, you know, we'll never get there because we don't have a deep understanding of how long it took the person who were witnessing their excellence to to have gotten there. Right. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, if you, I always think about this, especially, it's actually a lovely thing about the sort of digital era that there's a very one-sided or a a lopsided way that this works, right? If you, if you putting out a podcast and it does, and it's great, then it picks up listeners and it, and it spreads far and wide and people love what you do. If you put out a podcast, that's no good because you're still learning you don't get like, generally speaking, you don't get publicly humiliated and do huge damage to a reputation. It just doesn't get noticed by anybody. Um, if you put out, a, if I put out an idea on my email newsletter on Twitter or on the, online or something that, that catches fire with people, that's wonderful. If it doesn't, just doesn't really get seen by anybody. So, so there's actually even less reason to feel paralyzed by this than, than there used to be. Um, when, you know, maybe if, if you're doing this for a old-fashioned kind of newspaper or something, there is more at stake if you put something out in there that's that's uninspiring. Um, the, there's even less reason to worry about this. You know, do things, put them out there. The realistically, the worst that is going to happen at, at scale, anyway, is that they're going to vanish without trace while you while you make some more until you get better. And um, and, and so this notion that like everything is riding on you already being perfect at it is is really it's unnecessary. Yeah. So I want to get a little bit into the details of time and using time here. And I think, you know, you've mentioned you have a five-year-old son, you're, you're creative and prolific in your writing and your world of ideas. And you also have some hobbies and I'm sure you have daily stuff that we all have to deal with emails (laughs) and laundry. How do you, as you know, a busy person, if you were to think about the typical day in your Mm -hmm. life, right? Like today or tomorrow, Mm -hmm. how do you approach sorting through all this and, and kind of like, you know, creating a day for yourself? Yeah, well, I love talking about this, so stop me if I go on uh, if I go on too much. Um, and I can't use today or yesterday because my my wife is away for five nights, and I'm instantly stunned by the fact that anyone is ever a single parent, and just like filled with admiration for anyone who manages to be a single parent and do anything else at all. So, so it's not a very typical time because I my standards for what I'm going to do, apart from a little bit of work in the middle of the day and parenting are out the window uh, as I do it all myself instead of as a shared burden. But um, I mean, one of the things I've really benefited from in terms of work is to be very sort of modest in terms of the number of hours I'm going to expect of myself to do hard focused brain work. And and here um, I draw partly on the work of our mutual friend, Yael, um, Alex Pang, who in 
his book Rest has has you know gone into great detail about this mysterious regularity that so many kind of authors and artists, scientists, mathematicians through history, when you look at their daily routines, were not ever trying to do more than about four hours of really focused, intense brain work. Uh, and I try to take that kind of approach to writing because then what you do is you you really fight quite hard to ring fence, if you're me, you fight quite hard to ring fence that time. But in return, you kind of don't try at all about the rest of it. And you don't worry about the fact that the rest of it is scattered, has lots of interruptions. Um, so, you know, on a typical day, I'm trying really hard um, to, you know, have as few appointments before about midday as I as I can. But then I'm not trying to be a recluse the rest of the time. I'm, I, it's great to talk to people and I, and I wouldn't want to be or a clue, but it's that sort of, it's a very sort of limited period. And, you know, it turns out that even if I had eight hours to focus on writing, I wouldn't actually use those eight hours because I would be sort of exhausted by the, uh, by the effort for that time. Um, and then, yeah, I suppose I do try also to lowball the number of other things that I think I'm going to tick off any list uh, in the, in the course of a day so that you get that satisfaction of having actually done the things you aim to do instead of, 10% of the things that you aim to do. I think, you know, working from home and being parent of a small child and, and, you know, all the rest of it, one of the things that I have definitely struggled with is how you plan the day when you don't want to create a sort of overly brittle or rigid plan. You don't want, like, you know, I, I don't want it to be a failure of my day if it turns out that I'm it's best for me to now spend an hour with my son talking about all the things he did at school. Like it's something's gone wrong with the planning. If, if my system is like, Oh, well, today didn't work because that thing, that thing happened. You need boundaries. You need arrangements with your spouse so that it all can be as balanced and fair as possible and all the rest of it. But like, you don't want to create these sort of boundaries that are so firm that life keeps sort of banging into them in unhelpful ways. Yeah. So, I mean, this kind of fits in with the concept of psychological flexibility. So you try to set some boundaries, but also to kind of roll with it when the plans get overturned because you have a five-year-old and a wife who might have other things that need to happen that, that right. need accommodation by your schedule. But it does sound like you try hard to adopt that four hour a day of deep work and mm -hmm. be as dedicated as you can sort of within reasonable limits, which which I think is 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 brilliant, and then it really does kind of free you up to be more relaxed in in the non deep work time. So I think it's a really yeah. great take home tip. I had a follow up question. I I was listening to another interview with you, and I think it was with Dan Harris on Ten Percent Happier, and you talked about meditating every day. And I'm just curious how you fit that in. Maybe not huh. this. Maybe not in the past five days. Which yeah, I, I was going to say. Well, that was a long time ago that I recorded that podcast, and I do not currently meditate as regularly or as for as long as I did when I when I did that podcast. So the answer is I don't, I don't fit it in. Um, I mean, I I do try very hard to make space for things that sort of fit into that category for me of of activity. So something that I do do pretty much every day is get up early enough to do a sort of forty minute uh, morning pages. You know, writing on journaling on sort of three sides of a narrow ruled a five notebook, you know, that's, um, which takes me about 40 minutes. Um, so again, not every single day. Um, but, but that's something that I think is, is, is related. It, it has some of the same 
is giving some of the same benefits of meditation. And since we moved from Brooklyn to here in the Yorkshire countryside, I'm also trying really hard to make sure that I'm like outdoors for an hour at least every day. Sometimes sort of running and 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 strenuously exercising, but sometimes just sort of wandering around. Uh, sometimes with the family. Sometimes it's, it has to come out of my of my work day. That again, I think, is fulfilling some of the same purposes, and is just kind of the difference that it makes is just enormous. So some of those you do just have to be like, this is too important. I'm going to make it work, and uh, and, and something's going to have to give. Uh, and then others of them, as in as as with my the 45 minutes of meditation or whatever that I was doing when I did that <laughs> podcast, uh, they do give for a while. And, uh, you know, fair enough, I suppose. Yeah, that there's like phases of life. But it, it sort of sounds like there's a few different pockets of things that you try to accomplish in a given day, some deep work, some time with your family, and then some time that's like either meditative in nature, whether that's journaling or time outside. And Debbie and I both found quite a lot of delight in reading about this idea of the importance of hobbies and your example of Rod Stewart. And so I, I wonder if you can talk about the importance of non-productive hobbies that, and, and maybe, you know, we can think about what pocket that category of activity fits into. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing about hobbies above all is that it's this idea of doing things for themselves and not always having an instrumental goal behind what you're doing. It doesn't, absolutely doesn't have to be a hobby, but I think that hobbies are a really interesting phenomenon because they're sort of frowned upon in a way almost today, right? Or, or sneered at or something. Um, we're a bit, it's a bit embarrassing to sort of admit that you spend a significant amount of your time doing, doing the things that we classify as, as hobbies. And I make the point in the book that, you know, if it's a side hustle because you're making money out of it, then it's kind of cool. But if it's if you're just doing it for itself, then um, it's a little bit embarrassing. Rod Stewart has this model railway hobby where he's a sort of internationally known rock star, but apparently all the way through this career was like building this intricate layout of an American city with model railways in it. Because and you know it's so unrelated to his personal brand that you have to conclude he must just do it because he really loves it. And I think there's something in that idea that we should all have something like that. Now, in terms of my regular day, I mean, probably the bit about walking and hiking is, 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 is where I, is what I'm doing in that respect. I am not currently um, also finding time to build an enormous miniature railway setup. Or, or tickle the keys, right? Right. Well, I do also mention, yes, playing bad, playing piano badly. <laughs> and I mentioned that partly because I think it's actually sometimes quite helpful if the hobby you have is something you're really mediocre at. I get some time to do that. Maybe just 10 minutes in a work break or something. But what's so freeing about that is that there's no pressure, right? Because I I am never going to earn a dollar for my piano playing, guaranteed. Um, unless I go somewhere public and take money to stop playing. You know, <laughs> you know. um, so there's none of that pressure that I do feel with writing and with all my sort of main work operations, which is that you, you want to do them well and they might not work out. And so the pressure is there. And with a few sort of hobbies where that just doesn't matter, I think are an incredibly important thing to have in the midst of a life. You break a bunch of myths in, in your book about how we get trapped into thinking about time in unhelpful ways. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I love that you talk about is this idea of our focus on the importance of freedom in how we choose our time. So, you know, we want to be able to choose, you know, how we structure our day, how much time we spend on work versus how much time we spend with our families, you know, when we wake up, when we go to bed. Yet 
total freedom over time you talk about has some costs that might be surprising where constraints might um, actually help us out in surprising ways. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the costs of free time and how we might newly see the value, the positive value of time that's not freely spent. Yeah, I think the kind of freedom that we're talking about here is that individual freedom, isn't it? It's that idea that you may have all sorts of constraints on your time, but the the ideal that we seem to reinforce as a culture is that in the perfect world, you would get up in the morning and it'd be completely up to you what you did with your time. And, you know, maybe some of that would absolutely be spent communally, but nonetheless, you would get to decide like, you know, exactly when you did things and the sort of epitome of this these days is the notion of the digital nomad right the person who can just sort of work from wherever they want with their laptop and is unconstrained by by any kind of limitations on their time and what you find if you talk to those people is that there are there are advantages to that lifestyle but it can be really lonely as well because actually an awful lot of the benefit that we get from how we spend our time is in the way it's coordinated with other people and it's and it's and it's to do with you know rituals and traditions and ways of doing things that 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 line up our time with other people so that we can use it uh, like so you find in countries where they have a very strong social maybe even legal norm of summer vacations all be taken at the same point that that there's a big happiness benefit to this out, out in the world because people are happier when they're on vacation at the same time as lots of other people because you get to hang out with the people that you want to see or because you know that no one's trying to steal your job behind your back and the emails aren't flooding in. Um, And in these very little ways that we don't think about, right? I mean, if we didn't have those rhythms at all, we wouldn't be able to do all the things that, that, that give us value, whether it's in work or relationships or activism or anything else. It requires that, that coordination of time. So yeah, if you if you end up, uh, one thing I find as a sort of a freelance laptopy person, right, is I have total control over my schedule in some ways, um, and so do quite a lot of my friends. It's impossible to find a place in our diaries to meet up, you know, when we're all free to meet up because we're all out of sync with each other because we all have this degree of control. And the best times are when you sort of you start, I don't know, start a book club or you join a society or I until COVID anyway, used to sing in a choir all the time, where you give up that right. It's like, no, it's Wednesdays at seven o'clock. That's when it happens. And if you want to be part of this, that's when you have to do it. And you have to work with that and fit your schedule around it. And that's what enables the the fact that this great thing can happen. So yeah, that's all. I'm yeah, it reminds no. me of of the re- the research from Emile Durkheim, who was a French sociologist, and he published this study on suicide, looking at predictors of suicide. And what he found mm-hmm. was that no matter how he categorized, he collected data from across Europe and found that people with more role constraints, who had more demands, more obligations, were less likely to commit suicide. So mm-hmm. you're kind of getting at it from a different angle, but it's this yeah. idea that when we're sort of constrained in these ways because of ties to other people, it it is a loss of freedom, but it's a gain of connection and meaning because we're right. doing things with and for in service or just connecting in the joy together with other people. And there's something that's that's a human need that we have that is hard to fulfill if we don't have those kinds of constraints or obligations. Yeah, right. We're sort of held in that web and supported by it as well. And, you know, it's definitely... Um, there's an ambivalence here because 
you, you wouldn't want to belong, a society that schedules all of its people's time all the time is a totalitarian one by definition. And, you know, there's certainly been times and places in history when people have sort of suffered under having their time controlled far too much for them or by societal norms or whatever it might be. But you don't want to assume that this sort of ultra libertarian alternative is actually where you should be headed. So yeah, it's just something to something to keep in mind if you're someone who does have freedom over your schedule or is seeking to increase the level of freedom you have over your schedule. It's like there's a flip side to this as well. Okay, so since we have you here for a few more minutes, I want to ask you some advice for my <laughs> life. Okay, because I, you've alluded to this a couple times today and in your book. I always think I'm right around the corner from being caught up on things, right? Mm -hmm. As soon as I get this deadline that I have on Friday and I finish these couple of things that are hanging, then I'm going to have more spaciousness in my schedule to do these relaxing, enjoyable things. I also feel like I'm constantly, I think you call it clearing the decks. I'm trying to clear yeah. the desks yeah. on certain top, right? I never catch up on my emails. I'm always a little behind on my therapy notes. Sometimes a lot of a lot behind on my therapy notes. I'm never caught up with laundry. So it's like I'm trying to get get ahead of the game with these big items on my to-do list and then I'm trying to as soon as I'm folded all the laundry and I've caught up on my notes, then I'm going to chill out. What advice do you have? And I know, I mean, I talk to therapy clients all the time who struggle with the same thing, the mm -hmm. sense of like I'm almost there. And have I just pushed through? Yeah. But of course, right? So what advice do you have for me? <laughs> I mean, I feel a little um I feel a little conflicted because I still totally get get into that mindset, right? I don't want anyone to think listening to this that you haven't you haven't totally sort of mastered it yourself. Have it all nailed. Okay. <laughs> what it is, what really helps, I mean, there's a there's an attitudinal point and then there's a tactical point, I suppose. The attitudinal point is just that. What has changed for me is that I can sort of see through this a bit, even while it is descending upon me, right? So there's a kind of disillusionment in the positive, in a positive sense, uh, uh, that that has happened for me. So that you know, sure, maybe in the back of my mind, while I'm going through my email, is is the notion that I'm going to get on top of it all forever. But I can also sort of see a little bit that that's that's just my old same old stuff doing its doing its thing and I know what's going on there um so in a way you can just become a little bit more sort of um accepting of your own uh ridiculousness in that respect and then you can sort of take the edge off it that that causes the stress right because it's it's not it's not a problem to be entertaining that slight daydream that you're about to be on top of everything unless it's kind of causing you suffering that it doesn't need to cause or causing you to sort of um, distort your priorities in a way that, that, that you otherwise wouldn't. And then tactically, I kind of find that this, this sort of what, what I call and has been called by others sort of a fixed volume approach to productivity is really, is really helpful here. So if you tell yourself today is the day I get through my inbox, then you're really just sort of exacerbating that mindset. If you say, you know, today at this time, I'll dedicate, an hour to to getting through my inbox even if in that time you are still you know uh bewitched by that by that fantasy of sorting it all out that's okay you know and it's got some boundaries around it and you're going to be reminded when the when your timer goes off or however you're handling this to, it's time to get up and go and do the next thing um you can sort of 
use the energy of that of that um, the thing you're talking about without becoming totally sort of governed by it because you're sort of putting boxes around your time you're the the basic the sort of most basic level here is just you're, you're saying first of all what time do i have available and then what shall i fit into that time rather than first of all what tasks do i have to get through and how the heck am i going to make sure that i get through them all by the end of the day which is just a recipe for the planning fallacy you know for vastly insanely overestimating how much you're really going to get around to so I'm definitely spend time doing something that I would call clearing the decks still today, but um, but I do it for you know maybe an hour, an hour and a half, and guess what? They're never clear, but that's okay. Well, that's that's one of the reasons I'm I really wanted to be involved in this interview <laughs> is that this perspective shift I've used it with a lot of clients and also just an occasional reminder to myself since I read your book that it is something about coming to a sense of reality and it's not your fault for not being caught up. It's just so liberating. It's like, it's not like you're not productive enough. It's that you're trying to do something that's impossible. It's unrealistic. And so you actually have to just kind of like find a little bit of peace with that to let yourself off the hook and be like, maybe I'll never catch up on some of these things. Mm -hmm. That's okay. I still have to like live my life in a way that's meaningful to me. And if, if I'm going to be constantly behind in a few areas, you know, okay. (laughs) <laughs> right. It's inevitable and it's inevitable for everyone. And it's a function of the standards that you're holding yourself to rather than your failure to have exerted enough self-discipline. Yeah. 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 Well, Oliver, thank you for spending one of your 4,000 some odd mortal hours with us. We were, we were honored and just delighted to, to steal an hour of your time. And we will definitely link to your website. Are there other places that listeners can find out more about you and your work? Well, the book is finally now back in stock uh pretty much all the places books are sold and obviously ebook and audiobook have uh, always been uh, have been there all along and no my website oliverberkman.com is where to find everything else sign up for the newsletter and, and all the rest of it yeah thank you so much it's been a pleasure thanks very much for your questions and the conversation thank you for listening to psychologists off the clock if you enjoy our podcast you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on patreon You can get more psychology tips by subscribing to our newsletter, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Connect with us on social media and purchase swag from our merch store by going to our website at offtheclockpsych.com slash merch. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.